Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Since we were last together, there have been some unspeakable tragedies that have occurred in the U.S. with the mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, which of course come after decades of mass shootings in our country. I don't have anything particularly powerful or insightful to add to the commentary around this. I feel as helpless as all of you, and I have four young children of my own who I send off to school, and I pray that no harm comes to them, and so I feel... Like I said, I feel just as helpless as anybody else. Uh, I read a number of powerful reflections on these tragedies. Something that Charlie Sykes wrote over at The Bulwark recently struck a nerve with me. He wrote that, quote, A system that cannot keep its children safe or prevent a million deaths from a pandemic is a system in crisis, perhaps in terminal decline, end quote. I got to say that I share this sentiment. I feel as if there's really something very wrong with a society and a government that cannot come together to confront such important problems. And I reject the notion there's nothing we can do to make sure there's less of this. I personally am willing to compromise. I personally am willing to sacrifice in order for our society to get better. I don't care about ideology. I don't care what specific mixture of conservative and liberal ideas it takes to get it done. I don't care whose ideas are better. I just want less carnage. And I pray to God that we get serious about this as a country. I wish I had something more helpful to say about this, and I really don't. So I'll just say that I grieve along with all of you, and I reject the idea that we are powerless in the face of this. This is a country that has done so many great things. We can come together and confront these problems. No easy way to move on from that intro, Um, but on today's show, we're going to be speaking with John Marshall. He's a professor at Northwestern University in their School of Journalism, and he has a new book out called Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis, which you can find on Amazon and anywhere else that you buy books. This conversation was actually taped before the recent tragedies, and thus the tone is pretty lighthearted, but maybe that'll give you a little escape in these troubled times. So without further ado, here's my conversation with John Marshall up next. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. It's great to be with you. So you wrote this great book, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis, out this year from Potomac Books, which is an imprint of the University of Nebraska Press. 
You can find this book on Amazon and anywhere else where you buy books. So before we get to the, the meat of the book, let's talk about your background. So tell us about your journalistic background as well as your academic background. Sure. Uh, so I was a daily newspaper reporter for the Tampa Tribune down in Florida in the Daily Herald in the Chicago area. And I freelanced for all sorts of newspapers and magazines and websites along the way uh, and started teaching at the Medill School of Journalism in the year 2000. So uh, what interested you uh, about this subject? I know this is with, within your wheelhouse, right? But what specifically about uh, presidents being combat combative with the press interested you? What brought you to writing this book? Well, it's actually a very personal story for me. When I was five years old, I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, during the heat of the summer, my family would go to San Diego for a week to cool off. And so we were there in the summer of 1968, and my dad heard that Republican presidential nominee, Richard Nixon, was staying at a hotel about a mile away from us. So he thought it was a great idea to take my older brother and I uh, down, the, down the beach uh, to see if we could meet the, uh, the presidential nominee uh, who might become president soon. Uh, so we did that, and we waited outside the hotel, and sure enough, Richard Nixon walks out with a couple of aides, and my dad... I can't remember what he shouted, but he shouted something over to him. And Nixon came by and shook my brother's hand and my hand and my dad's hand and made small talk for a few seconds and then was on his way. So at age five, I had a special interest in the incoming president uh, who, as, as we all know, Nixon was elected in November of 1968. Uh, and then fast forward about four or five years from now, uh, this nice man who I met uh, in San Diego is all, all of a sudden in trouble with this scandal called Watergate. Uh, and I was about, oh, uh, 10, 10 years old or so at the time. But my family talked a lot about politics and what was going on. So I became very intrigued all, by all this. I actually for, wrote my first newspaper article ever for my fourth grade newspaper about Watergate. It was two, it was two paragraphs long, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, watched, um, I watched all the hearings, Senate Watergate hearings uh, on TV with my mom. And I was just trying to understand how this, this you know, nice man I met uh, got into so much trouble. So that really whetted my appetite uh, in, in my later career, once I had a chance to, to, to write some books, to do my first book, uh, which was called Watergate's Legacy in the Press, The Investigative Impulse. Uh, and then when uh, Donald Trump was elected uh, in 2016, and we saw his uh, very tumultuous uh, relationship with the press, uh, I wanted to, to research and, and write something to try to understand how we got to that point uh, of turmoil and contention uh, between presidents and the press. So given your background, is your favorite journalism movie All the President's Men or, uh, or something else? <laughs> I probably watched All the President's Men more than, than any other movie. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's probably, probably my favorite. There's definitely some other great ones like Spotlight about the Boston Globe's investigation of the uh, Archdiocese of Boston and, and, and uh, Predatory Priest and uh, The Post. Uh, which is closely related uh, about uh, the Catherine Graham publisher of the Washington Post's decision to publish the Pentagon Papers. Those would probably be my next two favorites. Also, the movie Network from the 1970s is, I think, still holds up and is still a fascinating movie. I really love Spotlight. I watch that movie uh, quite frequently. But we'll move on. So, um, 
So before we get to, like I say, the meat of the book, um, I think this is a question that even when I ask people who are well-read, people who are highly educated, oftentimes it kind of stumps them, not completely, but they don't come up with a great answer. And I think you will. And I think it's important for all of us to pause every once in a while and ask ourselves this question and remind ourselves of the answer to this question, which is the importance of journalism, the importance of the press to democracy. So, if you're making your pitch to the average American, you're making your pitch to Medill students, um, tell us why is the press, why is journalism so important to a healthy democracy? Oh, absolutely. I think all we need to do is look at countries where there isn't a free press uh, and not a um, healthy uh journalism going on. Uh, you know, the most obvious example right now is, is Vladimir Putin's Russia, uh, where journalists who criticize the government are imprisoned or, or exiled or have their TV stations cut off or their, their websites downed or their newspapers uh, not allowed to, to print. Uh, and we see that in authoritarian and totalitarian regimes around the world. Uh, China does not have a free press. Cuba does not have a free press uh, and, and many other places. So really the first thing dictators try to do um, is shut down a free press because they don't want to be scrutinized. And that's something that the founders understood uh, coming out of, of the colonial era uh, when there was a lot of restrictions on what the press could do by the, by the British colonial government. And uh, you know, the very first newspaper in the United States uh, in 1690 public occurrences before and a domestic was was shut down after only one issue because it didn't didn't have the permission of, of, of the royal authorities. And so the founders understood this and understood that if a government is going to be effective, if a government isn't going to be corrupt, if a government is going to reflect the views of the population, uh, that, that citizens need to know what is going on. Uh, in their country and what's going on with their government. Uh, and, and a free press is absolutely necessary for that. Uh, that's not to say that they weren't always happy uh, with the free press because they, uh, once, once they were part of the government, uh, they didn't like the criticism they received. Uh, but they understood, you know, the theory of the importance of a free press and they enshrined it in the First Amendment to the Constitution. You know, two of the things that I mentioned uh, when I talk to students about journalism and the importance of journalism is, of course, what you said, which is, um, you know, uh, educating and disseminating information, but at least as important is accountability. And uh, in your book, you say uh, the declining economic health of the news business has sapped its ability to hold presidents accountable. Um, I think this is obviously a problem at the national level. I worry even more about this at the local level, though. I mean, when you look, when you go around the country and you look on the internet at some of these newsrooms, there's like one person there. And I have no idea how they're going to keep local government accountable. Uh, it, I, I feel like it's just inviting corruption. Can you talk about that, about that accountability aspect and, and what this declining industry might do to government corruption? I think you're um, absolutely right, Lawrence, about uh, the danger uh, of decline in journalism because of, of its economic problems and that it has its most uh, negative effect uh, at the local level. There's, despite limitations, there's still a lot of really strong national publications that can cover Washington and can cover the White House. Uh, but we now have hundreds uh, of communities around the country, uh, small cities and towns, uh, definitely rural areas that they have zero, zero uh, news coverage 
no reporters, as you mentioned, uh, or maybe just sometimes just one reporter trying to cover a large area. Uh, and what happens then is that the people in power, whether they're government officials or sometimes you know the businesses or sometimes large nonprofits, uh, like hospitals and, and and so forth, have nobody looking over them. And and there's been studies that show that that corruption goes goes up when uh, there's not that kind of oversight by a free press. Taxes go up uh, when there's not that kind of oversight because a, a good reporter is going to look at the budgets of of the of the towns and school districts and so forth and and look at where the money's being spent. Uh, and without that kind of oversight, uh, taxes go up. Uh, services tend to go down. Uh, so. In terms of the daily lives of Americans, having a, a robust local uh, free press is just as important as, as having it at the national level. All right. Well, you've got all sorts of great stories in this book, and I think people want to hear about it. So <clears throat> let's get to the, the meat of the book. So uh, you say in the book, since the nation's early years, presidents have frequently tried to attack, restrict, manipulate, and demonize the press in order to strengthen their own power. And you draw some interesting comparisons between recent trends and the press during the John Adams era. So tell us about Adams and what you call the imprisoned press. Yes. Uh, so George Washington, the first president, uh, was such a national hero. Uh, some people wanted to make him more like a monarch than a president. Uh, and the press uh, was sort of reluctant to go after him. Uh, because he was so popular, although towards the end of his second term, uh, they began to. Uh, so John Adams was really the first president, our, our second president, uh, but the first one to really uh, get full-throated criticism uh, from the growing number of newspapers. And there was also a lot of pamphlets in those times. And we also began to have an opposition party, uh, which in those days, they called themselves the Democratic Republicans. Uh, this was led by Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. Uh, and then uh, they later on that morphed into the Democratic Party. Uh, but they at the time uh, went after John Adams vehemently, uh, called him all sorts of mean and nasty things. Uh, they were very creative with their insults in those days. <laughs> by, by, uh, I, I was one of the part of the funds of, of reading the book is, is coming up with new insults. My, my favorite was toad eater, uh, <laughs> which I've never heard anyone lately call anybody a toad eater. But it's, Watch it's, your mouth, Professor Marshall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I get really angry at somebody, that might come up. That's right. But Adams was also, I mean, Adams was, was a great, you know, great leader in many ways, but he was very thin-skinned. Uh, and there just wasn't the concept yet of sort of a, a loyal opposition. Uh, so he took these insults personally, uh, as did his Federalist allies in Congress, and they passed what was known as the Sedition Act in 1798, which basically made it illegal to write or say anything critical of the president uh, or critical uh, of the government in general. And... Uh, Adams and his, his Federalist allies used it uh, to imprison more than 100 people, uh, both uh, the, at the federal level and, and in the states as well. Uh, and, the, and the courts in those days were completely controlled by the Federalists, which were, was Adams's party. So they would have like these one day trials uh, and editors and uh in those days, they're mostly both, you know, editors and publishers are usually the same person, but editors and, and writers would be thrown in jail if they had criticized uh, John Adams, uh, including one congressman who owned owned a magazine who wrote critical things, and he was thrown in jail. Uh, so the Federalists and John Adams were really trying to restrict and literally imprison the press 
but this law proved to be wildly unpopular. Uh, it didn't stop the, the Democratic-Republican Party from criticizing Adams. They even became even more critical. More newspapers <laughs> started than were shut down uh, by the Adams government. And it ended up uh, being one of the factors leading to Adams' defeat to Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Funny how that works when you're right. It, it boomerangs on you. That's right. <laughs> so, um, in the book, you talk about changes during the 1980s that uh, during the Reagan presidency that released this powerful wave of partisan, divisive journalism that intensified the nation's polarization. So, can you key us in on what were some of the big changes to laws? during this time that changed the nature of the press and changed the nature by which Americans consume news? Sure. As we you know, just talked about, there's a long history of partisanship in the press, as we talked about with John Adams, and that was certainly true through much of the 1800s. Uh, but by the 20th century, this, the, the, the standards of journalism were the, the objective model, uh, where trying to present all sides of a story was was considered the gold standard of, of what you tried to do, uh, even though obviously, you know, bias could, could seep into that. Uh, but most of the mainstream news publications tried uh, to some extent to present different sides uh, of a story and, and a wide range of views. And that translated uh, into the airwaves uh, when we had radio and then eventually television. Uh, the Federal Communications Commission uh came up with with regulations uh, backed by Congress uh, after World War II, uh, saying that the airwaves are are public. Uh, one person can't own the airwaves. And because they are public, uh, that broadcasters needed to be fair uh, when they talked about political things. If you had one candidate on, then you had to have the other candidate on. If you had one side of an issue being represented, you had to have the other side of the issue being represented and, and serve the public issue. So the fairness doctrine was in place and uh, enforced sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, but certainly in, into the 1970s uh, and into the early 80s, uh, the fairness doctrine, uh, to a fair degree, uh, made sure that TV stations and radio stations were presenting, at least uh, ma making an effort at uh, presenting different sides of a story. Ronald Reagan uh, did not like the fairness doctrine. Uh, he believed in private enterprise uh, and a free market. And that government regulation uh, should not be creeping into what broadcasters decided what to do. And his, his chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Mark Fowler, famously said that a TV is no different than a toaster. And we shouldn't regulate it any differently than we would a toaster. Uh, so in 1987, uh, Reagan succeeded uh, in abolishing the Fairness Doctrine. And that really opened the door uh, for uh, talk radio as we know it today uh, to become vehemently partisan uh, in many instances with, with people like Rush Limbaugh, uh, Glenn Beck, Gordon Liddy, other, other people like them, uh, not, not even trying to hide what their partisanship is. And then when Fox News was founded in 1996, they adopted that same model very consciously. Uh, and then MSNBC and CNN you know, responded uh, in, in a different direction, but they became much more partisan than they had been. So a lot of what we hear on the airwaves today, the, the deep partisanship, uh, traces back to that 1987 abolishment of the Fairness Doctrine by Reagan. I mean, there are so many problems that worry me about, you know, climate change is an existential threat, right? So <clears throat> there are plenty of things that I, I worry about and we talk about on this show but this particular problem um, could just as easily 
threaten our democracy. Uh, I mean, we see viruses coming back, you know, smallpox that, you know, we, we thought we had eradicated. We see, um, you know, I mean, authoritarians on the rise. When you see misinformation and disinformation, these partisan outlets, ideological silos, um, I mean, are you optimistic, pessimistic? Are we going to rein this in? How do we put some guardrails back in place to, I mean, I, I believe, I, I strongly, firmly believe, and I'm not a journalism professor, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I firmly believe Americans have as easy access to as as much good information today as ever before. The problem is, you know, as Steve Bannon said, the zone's been flooded with other stuff as well. <laughs> so, uh, how do we rein that back in? I mean, this is a right. huge problem. That, that's a terrific question. Uh, I, I would point to at least a couple of, of approaches uh, we could use. Uh, one, one is on the, the regulatory level. Uh, and I think you're right. There's as much great information out there than ever before. There's, there's more of it. Uh, but there's also more disinformation out there. And a lot of that um, is spread through social media as we know. Uh, and there was a study done in the early years of COVID that the 10 top sites uh, spreading disinformation about COVID got more than four times as many clicks and views as the top 10 health sites about COVID. Uh, so social media often rewards misinformation uh, through its algorithms. There is very little uh, regulation of what goes on in social media now, uh, but there are proposals in Congress that uh, looking at uh, some of the regulations of social media that uh, if they are not more transparent, the, the social media giants like like Facebook and Twitter and, and Google and so forth are not more transparent about how their algorithms work and what they are rewarding, and currently they tend to re reward the most contentious stuff rather than the most informative stuff, if they're not more transparent about that, uh, then we would start to have more regulation of that content. Uh, so I, I think the federal government can leverage its power uh, to make social media more transparent uh, for everyone. So that's, that's my first idea. The second idea really comes down, and it's something that you said, comes down to all of us. Uh, we have the ability to find good information if we want. And I think there's a real problem with media literacy uh, in our society. Uh, we don't understand how these algorithms work. Uh, we have a hard time sorting through what is propaganda uh, and what is fact-based information. Uh, we don't understand how advertisers are, are trying to uh, manipulate us in various ways. Uh, we don't understand uh, the difference between uh, opinion-based journalism and, and fact-based journalism. And so I think media literacy should be taught in the schools in the same way that we teach algebra and we teach poetry, uh, because I think it's just as important. Uh, media completely uh, inundates our lives. Uh, we're, we're constantly exposed to media. And I think our school children uh, need to be, have a better start in trying to sort through that. And I think adults could probably use that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> this is a new problem. I had uh, Kimberly Whaley on. She's a law professor. We were talking about something totally different than we're talking about now. But uh, she mentioned, she said, you know, when I was a kid, the problem was finding good information. So, you had to go to the card catalog and it was uh, this arduous process, right? <laughs> uh, and now it's a completely different set of skills. It's filtering, right? And figuring out what's good and what's bad, as you said. So, um, and I, I couldn't help but think as you were talking earlier about 
the professionalization and, and the the rise of journalistic ethics in the 20th century that um, we were in sort of a golden era and it was different than a lot of the history of journalism, right? Like uh, this was a relatively new thing, this very professional, very ethics, very objective uh, model that we had and we're in danger of losing that. That's a bad thing. Yeah, I would say yes and no to the golden era. Um, I mean, I worked in the golden era. I liked it um, at least towards you know, the, I, or I worked towards the uh, yeah the end of it as a as a daily reporter, uh, and it produced a lot of great journalism. Uh, on the other hand, it shut out a whole lot of voices as well. Uh, sure. And sure. I think the, the the advantage of our current era is that people who never had a chance uh, to have their voices heard, uh, you know, beyond their own personal circles uh, can do so. So I think we get a much greater diversity of ideas now uh, from, from just a whole wide range of people. And it's much easier to get uh, global information now as well. You used to have to wait you know, a week or, or, or sometimes to get the news from abroad, whereas now you can, now you can get it in a second. And we can, just, we can see that with the coverage of the Ukraine war. Uh, so I think there are advantages to our current era. There, there were disadvantages to the golden era. But I think your basic point is right, that that was a time when fact-based reporting uh, that was verified uh, to the best extent possible uh, was the norm. Uh, and that still exists today, but it's also being flooded by a whole lot of other stuff. Yeah, maybe I should order a la carte, right? So I'll, I'll take the <laughs> the shared reality of the past, but uh, more voices forming that shared reality in the present. We could have this perfect system, but we'll, we'll move on. All right, but you made a good point. That was good. All right, so you say in the book that uh, technological advances have fragmented the media and enhanced president's ability to avoid the White House press corps. So when you when you look at uh, President Biden and his relationship with the press, um, so give us a grade. How is he doing? Is he informing us enough? Is he holding enough press conferences? Are they being transparent enough? Give us your thoughts. Give him a grade. So this isn't about his whether I agree with his policies or not. No, just, just in, just in terms press. of strictly yeah. his relationship with the press. Uh, I would give him maybe somewhere between a, a B and a C on that, uh, which is pretty much what I would give most of the presidents. Uh, before Trump, because uh, I, don't, I don't think not that many of them were great about it, uh, uh, but very few were um, as, as bad about it um, as, as Trump was. Uh, and this goes for Democrats and Republicans. I think on, on the good side uh, for for Biden and his administration is that his press secretaries are holding daily press conferences uh, where they answer questions. Sometimes they dodge them. Sometimes they spin them like all <laughs> press secretaries in the past had done uh, until uh, you know Trump's presidency when uh, his press secretaries didn't hold press conferences for more than a year, didn't answer reporters' questions for more than a year. Uh, and then when they did do interviews or had him do interviews, uh, it was most often with, with Fox News uh, to a large degree uh, and not to other media outlets. Uh, so I think the fact that uh, regular press conferences are being held is good. Uh, I think it's great that reporters by and large are being treated uh, respectfully uh, by the administration uh, and not insulted. You know, there's a couple of incidents where Biden snapped at uh, the Fox News reporter, uh, but then one, you know, but then would also still answer questions uh, and didn't uh, use the kind of insulting language uh, that President Trump used. 
Uh, and certainly the Biden administration is not preaching violence towards journalists, uh, which which uh, the Trump administration sometimes did, uh, which was which was frightening. So the Biden administration, I think, is kind of reverting to the norm of how things had been under most presidents before that. I think what he's been weak on is he's held very few news conferences himself mm-hmm. uh, at, at a much slower pace than most presidents. Uh, and that's that's been going. That number has been dwindling more or less since uh, uh, since Richard Nixon. Uh, but uh, Biden's holding even fewer, uh, not that many extensive uh, interviews, either uh, sit down interviews, reporters as well. So you could do, do more about that. I teach a, a social movements course at Shippensburg University. And when my students talk about making social change uh, and they ask, you know, what do you do? How do you how do you change our culture, change government, all these sorts of things. They're often sometimes surprised when I talk about the importance of the courts, so the different institutions. Uh, and then there's another institution that you mentioned in your book that uh, can dramatically change the way that the country works, that presidents work, that uh, that legislators work, and that is the press. So um, talk a little bit about, you say, journalists who champion political and social movements have influenced presidents to dramatically change their policies. Talk about journalism as an agent of social change. Yes, uh, I think the most uh, dramatic example of that is probably Abraham Lincoln and the abolitionist press, which I go into quite a bit of detail uh, in Clash. Uh, so Lincoln was someone who, through his adult life, was was on the record as being anti-slavery. He thought it was a, a moral abomination, but he wasn't in favor of abolishing slavery, at least where it already existed. He, he didn't favor allowing slavery to expand into new territories, uh, but he thought it should be left alone where it was. Uh, but uh, the abolitionist press, which started off um, as being very small and, and pretty much everyone, including Lincoln, considered it to be sort of a, a fringe radical group not to be taken seriously, uh, but slowly and surely, the, the abolitionist press and, and speakers uh, began to gain more allies. Uh, one of them was uh, Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon. And Herndon subscribed to some abolitionist newspapers, and he would read them out loud to Lincoln. And when Lincoln started to run for office, and particularly ran for president in, in 1860, he wanted to build as broad of a coalition as possible to, to win. Uh, he reached out to some of these abolitionist editors, uh, and talked with them, uh, was on uh, speaking podiums with them and uh, where they would uh, be behind him when he gave speeches. Uh, so he, he built support uh, among the abolitionists. Uh, and when he won, uh, they, they, they agreed that you know, this is the first time we had uh, a president who was really strongly uh, anti-slavery uh, in the White House for, for many decades. Uh, at first, they were very disappointed because Lincoln didn't move quickly uh, to emancipate the slaves uh, and, and push for, for abolition. Uh, and he had, he had at first uh, supported the fugitive slave law, uh, which, of course, was a, was a horrible thing. Uh, and the abolitionists uh, went after him for that. But they kept pressuring him, kept writing about it. Uh, and eventually, he agreed to start meeting with some of them in the White House. You know, the most famous was Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison, some of the others. Uh, and he would meet and talk with them and begin to bend a little bit uh, to their pressure. And eventually, Lincoln's moral compass, as, as being opposed to slavery, began to align with his strategic compass of trying to win the war. 
uh, and he understood to gain the most support for his his war effort and also uh, to have black soldiers serving in the Union Army uh, that he would issue the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and eventually support the 13th Amendment uh, abolishing slavery. And actually, the 1864 convention that renominated Lincoln, the, the platform for the abolishing slavery and the, the, the 13th Amendment was written by Henry Raymond, who was the editor of the New York Times at that point. So it's an example of how a social movement through the press gradually influenced uh, a president who was willing to change and willing to listen uh, and in, in the end did a great thing. Uh, you give some advice. I don't think you mean to do this, but uh, if, if I were reading this as a president, I might see this as advice in your book. You say uh, that a president who, who wants to have long-term success should nurture respectful relationships with reporters. So um, explain that point. Definitely. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things I realized during my research is that those presidents who were really good at having an individual rapport with journalists uh, and were the most open to being covered and were the least vindictive, um, I would put uh, Theodore Roosevelt in that boat, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, were people who generally had friendly relationships uh, with the White House press corps and other journalists. Uh, and because the journalists write the first rough draft of history in their in their daily reports, uh, that tends to influence how historians in the end uh, think about these presidents. And when you look at the list that historians come up with of the greatest presidents, many of the ones at the top of the list are the ones who enjoyed those friendly kind of relationships. On the flip side of that, some of the ones who had the most uh, contentious relationships with the press, uh, Richard Nixon would probably uh, be at the top of that list. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, certainly towards the top of that list. Uh, historians are still weighing in on Trump, but certainly Nixon tends to be towards the bottom of most lists uh, for historians when they when they rank the presidents. Uh, speaking of uh, Trump, uh, I was shocked when I was looking at your book Um to see something that I had paid so much attention to one of the, one of the most shocking things that I've ever seen in a white house press conference was the Chinese food question from one American news network. And then when I pick up your book, I see that you lead off the book with this example. So um, for those that have forgotten, uh, and I'd love to forget that this ever happened, but uh, remind us of this, uh, this uh, occurrence. And then, what really, I mean, you start the book with this, right? So you're trying to make a larger point that this encapsulates something about president's relationships with the press. So tell us about this, uh, what happened and what it says about his presidency and that relationship. Yeah. So this was in the uh, spring of 2020 uh, when COVID was already uh, really sweeping the country. Uh, it was the number one issue. Uh, and, uh, I'm putting reporter in air quotes here, reporter Chanel Rian of the One American News Network. And I'm putting it in air quotes because a whole lot of what she wrote was not substantiated by facts. Uh, but she called herself a reporter and she was part of the White House press corps uh, at one of the uh, press briefings that, that uh, President Trump uh, with his coronavirus task force was was holding Uh he didn't like a, another question that, that the mainstream press uh, asked. So he, he points to Chanel Rion says, I have one American news network. You're going to ask a fair question. Uh, and she asks a question. She first asks if she thinks uh, saying Chinese food is, is racist. Uh, and he says, of course, that's not racist. Uh, 
And then she launches into a, a, a series of questions uh, that are basically more statements and questions saying that the rest of the White House are uh, traitors uh, to the U.S. United States uh, because uh, they're critical of President Trump and they don't use the word, uh, the phrase Chinese virus when referring to the coronavirus, uh, which is what, how he wanted, Trump wanted to refer to it and when American News Network wanted to refer to it. Uh, and she went on to say all sorts of kind of unsubstantiated uh, conspiracy theories like that the coronavirus was created in a North Carolina laboratory and, and so forth. And Trump is agreeing with all of this. And it was just the most bizarre, wild exchange uh, that may have ever occurred in a White House press briefing, uh, spreading conspiracy theories, uh, calling other reporters traitors. And to me, what stands out about this is that it was barely noticed at the time. You know, there were, it was mentioned in a few news articles. Uh, I noticed it. But it was, <laughs> you, you noticed it. Lawrence, you're ahead of most of us on this. Um, I was barely aware of it myself. Uh, but uh, under any other president, this would have stood out as being extreme and basically nuts and uh and dangerous uh but in the trump white house it was just kind of a normal day in terms of his relationship with the press where the what was normalized was things that would have been considered um incredibly uh unusual and peculiar uh with any other president yeah it was a bizarre bizarre moment um Anyhow, so uh, we'll move on. So we don't have much time left. Um, real quick, before we ask you our last question, there's another book that you wrote uh, called Watergate's Legacy and the Press, The Investigative Impulse, Northwestern University Press, 2011. Give us a quick snapshot. Why should we add that book to our reading list? Well, if I may say so myself, I think it's a it's a fine book. It's a great author. <laughs> it's a great guy. <laughs> With the 50th anniversary of Watergate coming up, I think it's still timely. It looks uh, Watergate's legacy in the press looks at the history of investigative journalism from from the very start. Looks at it through the prism of Watergate. What was the reporting before Watergate that led up to that point that? allowed reporters like Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post, Seymour Hirsch at the New York Times, other reporters, uh, to be at the point where they could challenge um, a president um, as strongly as they did Richard Nixon uh, when it became clear that Nixon's administration was involved in a whole series of crimes. It examines the reporting of Watergate uh, closely uh, to look at what exactly it was and what kind of impact it had on, on the scandal, and then looks at the after effects uh, in terms of what it meant for journalism after Nixon resigned and what it meant for presidents in terms of the way that they try to uh, control the press, uh, manipulate the press. And I think a lot of presidents after Nixon learned some lessons from Watergate in terms of White House communications uh, and how to best uh, try to control the coverage of them. All right, before you go, I got to ask you this last question. So um, when, when I talk about lots of different subjects, but two in particular, I, I get people who are particularly ideological, their eyes glaze over, they lose interest, they disengage, the walls go up, they're not listening to me anymore. They're like, here he goes again, he's just talking about a liberal cause. 
One is misinformation and disinformation. And the other is the stability of our democracy and the rise of authoritarianism. Um, so at the beginning of this interview, I had you make your pitch to Medill students, to the average American. I, I want you to make a different pitch um, to people that are highly skeptical of the media, to people who hear your message and they think uh, he's one of them. He's on their side, right? He's just he's just spinning this in a way that uh, that's going to try to convince me. Um, why should we not turn our ears off to the notion that there still is a good press out there, that there still is reliable information? Um, talk to the skeptics and, and promote journalism for us. I would say to the skeptics uh, that they should stay skeptical. I think that's healthy uh, to, to be skeptical and, and question things uh, and try to uh, make sure that what you're reading or listening to or what you're clicking on is indeed uh, factual uh, and is indeed fair. Uh, I think it's important for all of us in the middle, on the right, on the left, wherever we are, uh, to look at a broad spectrum of different uh, journalism outlets. Uh, and then with each of those, look at, are they pointing to data? Are they pointing to more than one source for their information? Are they sharing a range of perspectives within that story? Uh, if a article or a news segment or a social media post is just giving one side of the argument. Uh, that should be a red flag for all of us. Uh, because most arguments, uh, there are nuances to them and there are different facets to them. If they're not uh, pointing uh, to a variety of data sources uh, and other studies, reports, and so forth, uh, not just one of them, but, 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 but several of them, then it's probably weekly reported. If it's using a lot of adjectives, uh, and saying this is the worst thing or this is the best thing, uh, this is the most dangerous thing, uh, this is the greatest, most patriotic thing ever. If it's relying on adjectives rather than stated facts, uh, that again should be a red flag for all of us. So I, I think our current media environment has a great possibility of enriching the information that we get because it can come from so many different places and we can hear so many different voices. But I think it puts more responsibility on each of us uh, to try to think uh, critically about what we look at. And for those who criticize the mainstream press, uh, I think there's, there's plenty to criticize. The, you know, the mainstream press, any newspaper uh, of a large size is going to have dozens of articles every day. And those articles uh, could be up to a thousand words long or more. Uh, so, you know, there's a good chance there's going to be a mistake uh, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, same with a 24-hour cable channel. Someone's probably going to say something wrong in, in those 24 hours, uh, and we should call them on it. But what we should try to judge as, as audiences are who tries to correct their mistakes, who tries to give a broad spectrum of opinions, uh, and who doesn't. Uh, and then go accordingly um, as citizens who all of us care uh, about democracy and making our country great. Jonathan Marshall, author of Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis, out this year from Potomac Books. You can get it from Amazon, anywhere else you buy books. Jonathan, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. Lawrence, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun talking with you.
Before you go, press pause, go to the show description, and subscribe to the Connors newsletter. It's free, it's awesome, and you will join our community of reasonable Americans. The Connors newsletter, it's in the show description. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.